0: Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast.
1: Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the
0: techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging.
2: Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hempel, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. The subject of today's podcast is Jobs, a new film that depicts the rocky rise of Apple computers via the story of the company's founder, Steve Jobs. As played by Ashton Kutcher, Jobs is brilliant, driven, audacious, and selfish, self-absorbed, and sometimes self-defeating. He's an extremely complex character, but the filmmakers who brought his story to the screen were more than up to the challenges inherent in the material. Director of Photography Russell Carpenter, ASC, is an Oscar and ASC award winner for his work on Titanic, Other credits include True Lies, The Charlie's Angels Movies, and 21. Director Joshua Michael Stern wrote and directed Never Was and Swing Vote before joining forces with Russell to tell the story of one of the most iconic entrepreneurs in 20th and 21st century technology. I'm pleased to have both of them here to discuss their work on jobs. Uh, Josh, before we get started into the technical side of things, I want to talk a little bit about the origins of the movie. Your previous two films were based on your own original screenplays. Here you're working from... Another writer's script and telling a true story. So, how did the project come to you?
1: It came to me through these financiers in uh, Texas who had commissioned a script and were sort of hell bent on making this film and very inspired to an insanely ambitious project. And I was more than happy to jump on that train and sort of go forth and try to slay this dragon. And, you know, on some level, it is a freeing and a challenge to sort of uh, deal with such a big story, you know, um, though, you know, I think the writer did a, a pretty good job, at, you know, at taking what was 30 years and trying to condense it into some sort of palpable uh, form. And my job, of course, and Russell's was to sort of bring it together and tell it in a cohesive, fluid, cinematic way. And, you know, the key, of course, being cinematic as all of any – biopic can sort of go the way of, um, you know, sort of episodic, which is what you always try to avoid.
2: What led you to Russ as your choice for director of photography?
1: Well, what wouldn't leave me to Russ? <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're doing a smaller film like this, I knew that I wanted somebody who had been in it and understood the, how big it can get, because I think that it isn't sometimes until you can see how big it can get that you could actually go as small and as quick as you need to go in a film like ours because your decisions have to be made by sort of instinct. And instinct comes with experience and it's an art and it's and and, and and with any art it's in the doing of it. And I was always a very big fan of Russell's. Um, I was a very big fan of his lighting. I always felt that there was just such beauty to his light. Um, whether it was as you mentioned a Charlie's Angels or a drama like Titanic or something more of a sort of a, sort of a more of a youthful thing like Twenty One. I, I felt there was always great movement to the camera, but always with an eye to to understanding the way that light interplayed and in our film we really had three different sort of looks to the film and I just sort of went and met with him and threw myself at the mercy of his of him and asked if he would join given that it was such a small movie and um and in many ways, it was also interesting because it was a movie in a genre that wasn't something that Russell had ventured into in quite a while. He, he doing so many bigger sort of romantic comedies and action and glossier films and beautiful films to come back to more of a verite kind of indie thing, which I think was fun for him and, and and great fun for me.
2: Well, Russell, when the script first came to you, what was your reaction to the script and the idea of making a movie about Steve Jobs? and? Well, my first
0: reaction was, wow, this is a lot of territory to cover for a film this size in terms of the budget and in terms of the schedule that we'd have. I had been doing a lot of romantic comedies and and Josh brought a script that was so different than what I had been doing and and so challenging. It made me think about the days when I was just getting started when, wow, here's a palette that I haven't been able to express myself in and we're going to try and do a bit of visual ledger domain with the production to get much more up on the screen than our budget says that we can put up on the screen so that that I said wow this is a great challenge I really want to do this
2: yeah, well, I mean, when I watched the movie, you know, I assumed because it was an independent film that you didn't have the kind of resources behind you that you have when you're working, you know, doing This Means War for 20th Century Fox or something like that. Um, do you, you know, do you have a preference in terms of working? I mean, do you like the bigger scale movies, the ones like this, where you're sort
0: of uh, forced to be more creative with more limited resources? The the challenges are very different, uh, often on the bigger films. A lot of it has Purely about logistics and and getting the, the 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 weapons of mass destruction assembled to 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 just enable you to do a, a massive scene. On this, it was wow. How how are we going to work this with a very limited budget, uh, with limited time? And uh, I didn't know at the beginning, but but. Josh's idea was that we meet, actually, meet every morning for an hour to an hour and a half. We met at Dupars and we discussed every bit of that film from the three distinctive looks that, that Josh wanted us to uh, express. And that, that was his mandate from the beginning. I, ha- I have three different looks for this film. How do we do them? And how do we stay true to the period? of the time without doing anything with our camera work that is overtly, you know, you you get into the penalty box by going over the top visually. So that was the challenge.
2: Well, you both mentioned the the three different looks. What were the three different looks and what sort of motivated them?
1: Well, I thought, you know, in working with Russell that it would be better to sort of define his periods by not only a marriage a marriage of the look, which would obviously include lens choice as well as the kind of camera movement we did. First look was based kind of on a lot of the street street photography of the seventies, you know, Helen Levitt, which was kind of it was desaturated with sort of a pop of a you know certain worn greens and and a, a more of a warmth and and Russell can talk about our lens choices there, which also and affected that. And the second look being in that in sort of first look sort of reflected his youth when he was doing LSD and he was traveling the world and the camera sort of let lots of flares in and kind of you know the, the we sort of thought that the the edge of the frame was was endless and that it would let sort of all the sort of camera and lens anomalies in and, and it was very sort of free flowing going into when he first became successful and entered the sort of um, business park that Apple One is which is based Basically a spaceship and we saw it as a spaceship and we decided how do we make that interesting? Well it, you know we sort of looked at the, all the president's men and, and Michael Clayton the, that sort of more sort of desat a little slightly more monochromatic. Uh, look, but also sensing that our lenses are going to get wider and isolating Steve in the lens more and also giving sort of more of an epic landscape to the interiors of these business parks Um, and also not letting any flare in, whereas sort of the edge of the frame is really a hard edge. We're seeing exactly uh, what we want to see within the frame. And the last, when he kind of, after he gets fired and comes back, you know, it, it sort of becomes much sort of richer and more current, saturated and fluid and lyrical in the camera work at the end of the movie when he sort of makes his return and then sort of the beginning of what we know Apple to be begins. Um, So, and as far as technically, you know, Ross, you?
0: We got a lot of help from, well, both Aeroflex and Panavision, Dan Sasaki, when we described what we wanted to do, he took us through a series of lenses that he, you know, and with Dan, it's like, try this fine wine, basically. This has, you know, he he would recommend lenses that we tested some, uh, what we call period lenses from the 70s and, and 80s that had wonderful they, they weren't nearly as clean as today's Primo lenses are, or the Master Primes, and they were fantastic. We fell in love with them. We staged our scenes so that we, we would catch light coming through trees, that we would, we would bring a sense of nature into the frame. Uh, we uh, put a basic LUT into the camera, which which basically warmed up our color tone. This was what what it, I, I said it was our garage band, our grunge look. And, and and the light and the composition and the camera movement had kind of like a fuzzy guitar chord feel. It, it just wasn't so clean. In fact, it was just so freeing to move from a world where every actor or actress within a frame has to look just so to a world where you're looking, almost trying to create accidental light wherever, wherever you look. And... Uh, that was great. The the second look, we we went to a colder uh, look, uh, slightly neutral with a little bit of cyan or blue into it. Uh, we went to a kind of a classic 5219 look where we went to the Primo lenses for a different feel. And uh, I think uh, later on in the film in the DI, there was a tiny bit of tweakage of grain structure between the two periods. And then the the third period, we, we stayed with the Primo lenses, but the colors that we allowed in were much more saturated uh, in, in terms of how these colors worked, much closer to something I might do for a coffee commercial <laughs> in the commercial world. And then we also used some glimmer glass to just catch flares, uh, a filter I'd never worked with, but just, just kind of spread the light a little bit like the old, old uh, Superfrost from the... Uh, Eighties uh, did. That's basically technically what we did. And what okay. kind of camera did you use? Well, we used the the Alexa. What we were trying to do, and what we found it was going to be very difficult to do because of just the, the dearth of anamorphic lenses, was initially try to shoot in anamorphic. And as the first day of shooting loomed large, and we realized that we were going to be working in very tight, wide spaces. Uh, Well, (laughs) I finally broke down, but I I don't know if Josh ever did, you know, (laughs) because I said, oh yeah, we're going to make these anamorphics work. And I just had to, you know, it just didn't happen. So we used the Alexa and so we extracted our super 35 frame from the basic, uh, the 16 by nine frame. It was not the way we wanted to go, but we were surprised at how close you know the the difference in looks is very subtle and usually i shoot raw when i shoot my features and this time we shot onto our our uh, pro Res 444 and i went wow the differences are really subtle i was very surprised and uh what was the thinking behind shooting it in the
2: through widescreen cinemascope aspect ratio
1: well i think it's twofold first is i just for me personally, as a moviegoer, I just love that frame. I mean, I just don't think that being able to compose within a larger frame and having so many characters. I mean, we're talking about the first team that created Mac. I mean, we had like nine people on screen at any one time. We were barely able to get them into a a wide lens. I mean, um, and also I thought that the ability to start freer flowing with things that felt a little more handheld um, and a little more you know verite and then being able to really expand that frame to the landscape of the business park of apple and just play with steve in the frame whereas at the beginning of the film it feels like he's really among us he's he there's a scene in india where he's among the crowd he's at he's in college and as he slowly becomes Steve Jobs, he becomes more isolated, and I think being able to play with negative space, whether it's, whether he's center or whether he's left or right, was was a lot of fun, and, and I think it's just always your challenge to take these movies about people's lives, which are by their nature intimate, and make them cinematic and feel as if it's something a little bit bigger than the moment that they're experiencing, and so I think that that was just an instant... You know decision there was never a question about 240. and the anamorphic thing was I, I gave it pretty after a while I gave in it, but but you know you always go and this is my first digital capture movie and I, I, I was stunned at how the Alexa did. It did beautifully. Also as a director, not having film as far as the ability to do the amount of takes we needed to do and to shoot multiple, multiple cameras, which is what we did was invaluable.
2: Well, talk a little bit about that. How many cameras did you shoot and how did that affect what you were doing? Well, we were on a,
0: a very tight schedule for the the scope of the film. I believe, was it 31 days? 31 days, days yeah. yeah. So we knew going in that we were going to have scenes with multiple characters. And even in tight spaces, we would always try to get two cameras working where, wherever we could. So pretty much there were two cameras working as long as we felt we were going to get a substantial amount of usable Footage, and of course, uh, probably as a lot of director of photography say, when you, when you have a very good uh, B camera operator, uh, who uh, he and his first will learn the scene, as and by the third take, they're finding potentials that you just say, go go fetch, and and they'll bring in some really lovely stuff, uh, and which will add energy to the scene.
1: I I was going to say that I also think that part of the reason why it was so great to work with Russell is that, you know, when you're shooting in digital capture with a DI at the end of it, I think there's sometimes a tendency for DPs to light very flatly or without a lot of depth, or even without mixing color temperature, um, you know, when they're composing a frame because you can really do a lot now, but you can never quite replicate it, and especially on an indie schedule, which is where, what we were on, and um, you know, what was great about Russell is that you know he. He gets that, and you know, so we could have a frame where, you know, he know he knew exactly what he needed to bring in his lighting and what he could do later. And it, but it was never at the sacrifice or the detriment of the frame, you know. And I think that's the key. That's the balance: is that you can't you, you you should light it like film. And when you don't light it like film, you should know sort of exactly what you don't need to add. That you, because you'll get there in the DI suite and you'll realize there's some stuff you can put in, but there is so much you can't get back. You can't get that, that 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 blue in the in the way background and the mid ground warmth of light coming through. I mean, you could add a little stuff, but it's really tough. So um, it was it was it was a great education for me as well about how do you tackle this medium and give it that filmic sort of gauze that we love. Uh, I think I think it turned out very well.
2: Did you guys ever consider, because it was a period piece and you kind of wanted to evoke period, did you ever consider shooting on film?
0: I, I, I think part of that, <laughs> part of the responsibility for shooting on Alexa was I actually felt that one of the things that I would feel more comfortable with is at the end of the day, knowing that our crucial takes were in focus. That may be a crutch, but I, we were moving so fast. I thought, won't it be great to know it's there when we when we move on? So that that was part of it and I, I you know, I don't know if we've ever discussed what, exactly why well
1: we... Because we did but it was such a such a quick discussion <laughs> yeah <laughs> because yeah. once they ran the numbers on it I don't, I don't think um, I don't think it's an apples to apples I think when you're doing a smaller film now you just it really is a cost savings ultimately even with all the extras that come uh, but we had a very small Alexa unit I mean we didn't have like we had one DIT guy and that was it and um, my concerns was because we had a lot of handheld in the movie I wanted to make sure that I, I, we felt very untethered and free and once we went pro res we really didn't have to have that concern and once we did the testing it was so it looked so good um, but to be honest I, I don't think we could have moved as fast as we did on some level um, but that's not to say that I would have loved to on some Perfect world Yeah. Uh, uh,
0: I, I think also one thing that tipped us, maybe we were on another project doing a picture where your cameras are far flung and you're moving from one space to another space. I go, oh, film is really going to help us out here. I think, you know, and I love film and I want to do another whenever I can. But knowing that we were probably going to be, well, we were always within the same room, I thought going uh, high def would, would help us.
2: One of the things I really liked about the movie was that as opposed to the kind of standard biopic formula, you know, it doesn't try to tell like Steve Jobs' entire life. I mean, it's very laser focused on his, you know, building Apple and, and, and you know, the impact he had on technology and all that. And it's a very specific period and a specific aspect of his work. Um, you know, the downside to that potentially is that you've basically got a movie that is just guys in rooms talking about business and technology. And it's interesting that you brought up All the President's Men as an influence, because that was a movie I thought about a lot watching this in the way that you guys managed to make guys talking you know, really dynamic and suspenseful and, and, and interesting. And I was wondering, was that, was that something, was it a concern that you were, you were worried about that it could become static, and did you talk about that?
1: Yeah, in one of our many conversations. And I, you know, one of the things I said to Russell was, we have to make the business park the landscape as any thriller has a landscape, hallways can be darker, you know, I mean, they're scary places or they're all lit or how do we bring mood into the conference room and how does a confer- conference room change to reflect the mood that's going on and, and there's a lot of palace intrigue as he was ultimately fired and he was set adrift for 10 years and that's the movie's focus was really on those years, the years that very few people really know about. Um, there's a moment towards the end of the film where Jonathan Ives turns around when he comes back the first iMac, that blue sort of pod-like computer which is pretty much the first computer most people associate with Mac and the movie ends a few years before that came out. But after that came out, we were, everyone knows the story, you know, so this is very few people know this moment. And I think in some ways, uh, we achieved that quite successfully. I mean, we walked into these business parks and Russell has some looks where those, those fluorescent ceiling lights go on forever. And it really gave the landscape that we, we were shooting for, but it was a, it was a real challenge. And, um, we always were very aware that of it and thinking of ways that the camera can reflect where the audience is and move around those spaces so that it is as dynamic as possible.
0: I, yeah, I think that also one thing that that uh, Josh did was a lot of times <laughs> the the easy thing is to say, we're just gonna cover this, we'll have our wide, we'll have our this and we'll have our, our tight shot and eventually you, pretty soon in the scene you work into your tight shot and the editor stays there. But even when we were going close, we weren't always on the long lens. So it, one of the directives was feel the environment whenever we can. So, so that's what we tried to do, e- either in depth in terms of what's happening or uh, covering the action. So you really do feel the environment or the camera moves around it. To show you where they are,
1: and, and I think the, uh, some of the mistake I remember reading in, in an American cinematographer many years ago, and I know this is going to sound really crazy. I'm not even sure which film it was. I think it might have been Jack the Bear. I know that sounds crazy, <laughs> but it was there was there, I was because I'm a I have like every American cinematographer for like 15 years. I'm one of those crazies, but. He was talking, I believe, about shooting inside and deciding to go anamorphic. And in this Jack the Bear movie with Danny DeVito, it was a small movie in a small bungalow. And it was a discussion about how, you know, you can use anamorphic to give a sense of space and character in space. And sometimes going into a small space and shooting very long um, actually works quite against you and actually... And actually makes it feel so much smaller because you don't even know where a person is opposed to the fact that you can look at a, 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 a small space or an, in, an interior space and say, that is my playing field. Let me shoot this as I would shoot it if I was shooting it in a square in Italy. Well, if we were in a square in Italy, we would start with this beautiful master that would come down. We'd probably crane down and that would maybe develop into our first shot and then we'd go into coverage and then we'd pop out and there'd be a dynam- dynamism and we did that in this film. We, we created a, uh, Freddie Wath, the production designer who was amazing, created a conference room with all glass walls and so we were able to do little little crane little moves into the in and we shot a lot of stuff outside we part of the directive too is to shoot as much as we could outside of windows and catch sort of moments as they were happening so that we see this conversation from all aspects whether you were outside of the room when it was happening and just viewing in or whether you were in the middle of it so it was a sort of tension between going out and then being thrown right into the middle of the tension and and I think that that was a way to try to tackle some sort of on the page very sort of mundane you know business conversations about the personal computer and ram and all that kind of stuff you know
0: I think one of the most fun things for me for working on an independent is is there's very little adult supervision. You know, I mean that there are production executives at studios whose job it is to come a into a, onto a set and make sure that the kids are playing well together. You know, and the, and that we're not doing this or that. But this way, we in our meetings we met at Dupars. You know, that that was our production office, and in our meetings before production began we all kind of got the film in our head. And then when we were able to shoot, we, because we were kind of under the gun, it became very free flow and improvisational. But because of those discussions, whatever was, you know, we, we had a template in our heads, but it, it just seemed, some days it says, "Well, oh, we'll just do this. And it seemed like we were making it up, but it, it wasn't really that because we all had the background of, of those discussions.
2: What kind of discussions did you both have with the production designer? Because I, I feel like the another thing I really liked about this movie is just the architecture and the sets are so beautifully integrated with the the light and the story and and the way the story is told so much through characters placed in their environments.
1: Well, I'll, I'll say this, and I learned it on this film, and, in, I, and advice to any director or filmmaker, you know, if you have an independent film that's practical location based and you're building very little scout you know one of the things that films don't do or they don't or filmmakers don't take upon themselves as much is to really scout it takes a while to find locations there are hundreds and hundreds of buildings you could shoot anything in and it's really Imperative that you pick your location so that they, they 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 you arrive and you can just shoot and you feel them. They have the right windows, the right lighting. There's a sense that you know you really can. This can be your template for which you can play in. And almost everything is a, everything's a found location. We built if we built it was within the location. It wasn't anything. Nothing was built except for the the booth at the end. The sound booth was built, you know. But everything was built in a location. And, but most of it was found. And um that was a lot to do with scouting with Freddie and with. Um Russell and Paul mm-hmm. Schreiber who is the locations manager and we really made it our business to scout and we didn't give up That's the other thing is you have to just if it's not right. Just keep going send them out again <laughs> I mean because very often that's the difference between whether you can get the scene and give it a sense a cinematic sense Or how easy it is for, for your DP to be able to light it All of those things are just completely at the mercy of the location and we had some very difficult locations But that's where Russ was great. He was able Able to sort of make a quick judgment as to nothing was perfect, no location's perfect, but this is perfect enough and is so, enough. if I can capture this, it'll be great. And so he knew, whereas I think there are DPs who might have walked into certain of our locations and said, there's just zero way, like literally, there's never gonna happen. And Russ would look at a room and he'd look at, you know, you know, fluorescence and business parks or tiny rooms. We shot this one scene in a dorm room, which when it wasn't a dorm room, it was the size of a closet. But it had two great windows, and we kind of we had already kind of done it. And Russell said, okay. I mean it was it was it was great. It was it was a sense that I think I also think for Russell, and I used to say I'm on suicide watch, because I had to talk him off the ledge a few times because a lot of it was really him just relying on nothing but instinct that he knew exactly what he was doing because he didn't have any of the toys and he'd had none of the crutch of, you know, a space with a grid and all dimmers and, I mean, the word dimmer, we never saw a dimmer. I mean, we just basically, you had a few lights. I mean, but it looks great. I'm just so, you know.
0: It, yeah, I, I, I think Freddie Waff the production designer, is is my hero because having the budget that he had, which was not really a budget at all, he just hung in there and hung in there. Josh hung in there. Paul Schreiber hung in there. It, because it, it, when you have to have a location that gets you 90% of the way there. And I think that on independent films, that's, that really is the, the key. Because locations are so much of a, a hero, especially when you're trying to do a period film it's just crazy.
1: And, and last thing on that, in the, the the mistake you make in not getting a location you like means that you're compromising, which implies that you're not able to see the world, which means that your lens can't capture as much because you're really trying to deny that whole section or this whole section and you can focus only on this. And that puts you in a box of, of making a film feel a little less cinematic opposed to a, a, a location where you can arrive and say, I can see everything and there's no place I can't see. That instantly gives Gives you a sense of cinema, but it's it's tough. It takes more time to find. Usually, you find something you think, well, that part of the building is great. We can't use this or this, but then we get there, and the DP says, well, honestly, I can only use this. You know, we can only be on a sixty sixty five million. I mean, whatever. We can only see it from a certain perspective. So, anyway,
2: uh, you've touched a little bit on how you sort of told the story through you know in terms of when Jobs becomes more isolated, using negative space and things. that. I was wondering if you guys could elaborate a little bit on how you kind of convey Jobs's state of mind visually because throughout the movie you do that i mean there's a great kind of early passage that that really puts you inside this guy's sensibility and then throughout the film you're you know it it's very subtly kind of conveys psychologically what's going on with him because he's not he's not like a real expressive guy in some ways
0: yeah uh what, well one thing that i could speak to on that is uh uh Josh also had, even when I came on, he, he had a lot of visual references of things that he'd been talking about. And, and he said, okay, period two is where jobs really starts to fall apart. And he really starts to isolate. So in certain places, let's take dramatic license with contrast and shadow and really isolate him with shadow. And he showed me pictures of these like hot spots coming in on top of people's heads and everything just falling off on the the side so i uh so we were able to run with that in in certain instances and be a little more dramatic with our lighting and using maybe a hot top light to isolate jobs when jobs is finally voted out in the boardroom, he stands up into a hot a light that's not quite real but it it just puts him in that sense, and you feel the heat you feel the anger that he's in uh He's uh, the the night before he's let go or or soon before he's let go, we have a scene where he uh, he's he's so frustrated. He's driving home on a dark street and he lets out a yell. And in that yell, he comes into the light of a street light and just lights him for two seconds. And so those were the kinds of things that we wanted to do to, to show the internal heat that he was generating the anger.
1: I also think that, you know, taking a wide frame and starting sort of poised and then breaking it up and going to handheld and feeling the tension of that was something that we played with. And one thing I sort of discovered on some level is, and we did that a lot more, I realized later, almost, you know, subconsciously, was we really did end up going to some uncomfortable framings and some uncomfortable we would have cameras zooming in and f- just finding moments and capturing things and trying to inform it as if the camera itself on some level was reflecting his his sort of um, instability and I think that, that made me nervous because I was concerned about focus as you know and I was concerned about framing but I think on some level my uh, you know my unease as a filmmaker was good because that is reflected in some of those camera moves in the sense that they're uneasy and thus they, they really did work you know um, you know, losing control on the day is always a little bit nerve wracking as you was a lot of what the journey was is are we in control with the light and, and with this and that's that that really worked you know and then there were the things that we really were in control over and they worked because he was in control like a lot of those scenes where we were sort of center punching slow moves in Kubrick like you know those were those were great and then to contrast that with like little zooms and snaps and stuff like that when he started to lose it was just felt really nice
0: yeah i I think that with spencer tracy's he he talked about how far you go and he says well you can go something about you can go really far but just don't get caught yes if you go too far all of a sudden the audience is going to step back and go that wasn't real we had lots of discussions about how to treat the scene where uh, Jobs and his friends are out in a field and he steps out in the field under the influence of psychedelics. It was just, how do we do that? And Josh said, less is more on this. I don't want to go into the trip or, you know, the, that Peter Fonda film or, 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 or crazy things that we're doing with cross-processing and stuff like that. Let's just do it with the way the camera flows, the way... Uh, the camera moves, the, and we'll do it that way rather than hit people the hell over the head.
1: And those having said that, Russell created an, lots of tracks in this wheat field, like was circular right around him. There was a lot that went into it. But that goes to one other point, which was that when I first approached this film... My first instinct was, of course, we get very tricky. Like, everything's designed. Everything is a slight almost visual effect as far as camera moves and and the way that we can sort of connect them and sew them together. Um, Maybe there's there's a moment, there's a camera that is like, you know, the Steve POV. Like, we're talking, but this is the way Steve sees the world, which, of course, would be inauthentic because there's no evidence, A, of it, and B, it would be a little bit, you know, Scott pilgrim or something. And I thought, well, wait, 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 no, 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 the only way to tell this under our budget, with our constraints, and really the most honest way to tell this story is to step out of it, to inform it in, in, in order to push it forward, and to sort of give note to the state of mind where we can, and let it have a flow, but not, not step into the middle of it, and not, you um, it's subjective without being manipulative, and I think that you know, subjective filmmaking, and that we really are in there, and we and everything was designed, but we really didn't try to over manipulate these moments so that it was like you know LSD trip or you know, you know, all of a sudden you know Steve starts to walk down the street and he becomes animated Steve because we're in a song, and that's that that was a version of it because he was that you know you could do that movie and they, you know what someone will, but this was the first Steve Jobs movie out. Of the gate and I think it was there was a purity that sort of needed to be done with the information we have on this man. Um, and I know that the judgment will be harsher because it's like when you're in the Olympics and the first one out, it's like, you know, and it will be looking back on a lot of the Steve Jobs movies that people will realize, well, there's only so much. He was an enigma, and hopefully the accumulation of scenes, though we didn't answer questions about him, will give the audience a sense, a feeling about who the man was because there's so little that you can answer about a man. Wanted very little answered about him, even through the book that was written, uh, very few concrete insights to the to the reasons that triggered the man. He was just
2: who he was. Well, as you say, everything in the movie is uh, you know is by design. But I'm curious how much of it is planned and how much are you spawning on the day. In other words, you know the the, the compositions and things. Did you? Do you guys storyboard ahead of time, or or are you?
1: Well, I'll speak quickly, then give it to Russ. We 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 met every day, and we met when Russ says we met. We met with our AD, who we shot list everything, and we we even would go back to film to scenes. So every scene was completely shot list. And it was, but in the shot listing of it and all of our transitions were thought out. But it was in the transitions and the shot listing of it that when we got there on the day, we were able to know what we had to get. And within that, there was freedom to explore. So we we always knew, oh, yeah, yeah, we got to get that transition shot. Or we always knew we were going to enter the scene with this particular sort of wide. But after that, a lot of the times, as Russell mentioned, we just sort of free flowed. But when I look back on it, as I think Russell implied, it was like we were free flowing. But really within the fact that it's like when you go to a college and you spend all this time memorizing memorizing a subject, and every professor says to you when you're about to take your test and making a film is the test, they say to you, now
0: forget it because you know you know it. Yeah. Ditto. I don't I, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> oh, yeah. that, was, that was exactly what I felt, too. Yeah.
2: Well, I want to ask about one particular shot in the movie that struck me that I, I really liked, which is uh, there's a scene where Jobs kind of unveils the invention of the Macintosh computer, and you guys do a 360-degree shot around him and i and i was wondering if you could talk about how something basically take take me through a shot like that kind of conception to execution i mean first of all like what was your thinking and choosing to shoot that that way and then logistically how do you actually do it
0: in that case as far as i remember it josh said you know what i'm feeling really strongly about this but i think we need to do a 360 First of all, as a, a director of photography, you go, okay, what what can we do that's strongest visually, but that's going to, in a real location, allow me to do that. And so I have a discussion with with Len, Mike gaffer, our excellent operator, Greg Lundsgard, and we talk about, okay, we can do this, but you know what? If we move this furniture this way, this this way, this this way, so it's very improvisational, and you go, okay, now we have an arena. Then I have to say to myself okay, we're going to land here, so I want that to look great. I know we're going to rush by this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. And I know that these places, these places, these places are going to need a little paprika and oregano, so let's do something with the lighting or or just putting a lamp in. And you just... you Virtually, that's how that movie was. You just... Okay, we're going. We throw it together. And and, and I was really, really happy with that scene, the way that, that turned out. I, I think it had a great energy again, for uh, uh, what could have been a bread-and-butter interior.
1: And I think the other thing was it was designed to sort of be part of a bigger sequence. So the the entrance, the wipe into it was always thought of. Um, but it goes to show, that's a scene that you mentioned, the importance of camera operators, and they are just... Their vi- the, the v- I mean, you'll never, ever be able to play, replace the artistry of a, a camera operator's finding focus, finding the shot, finding the emotion after seeing the re- rehearsals of the actors and just that slight move in or that slight, you know, dance you make with an actor's expression. And in a scene like that, he had to walk basically around a whole room and had to be so smooth on that steady cam. And he was grapevining, basically. And it wasn't easy and... But he got it. And that's another moment where you realize that having pros to do it and that's what they do is so important because it's really you know in the end you look at a film and you look at sort of the, uh, the, the the artistry of it and the sort of and then you actually think of the day and you realize it's just a guy with an enormous contraption on his body who is sweating and breathing hard and trying to control this camera and someone's trying to keep focus and it's extremely analog really it's just it's human gut and balance that's making it work which of course if we were on a bigger budget we would have track that I don't know if it would even be motion And it'll be a motion-controlled shot, but that was a great shot too because it was all steady. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You 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 might on a bigger budget you might allow yourself to start to overthink it, but this was again analog, totally organic the way these things these things happened. You know, and we we, very often we'd be in the middle of the scene and and go. Oh, wow, did you see the way that played out? Wouldn't it ha- be neat to have this special shot that dollies down the length of the table? And when you have we Jim Shelton, our talented grip said, Done and he and we didn't have a technocrane, so he he, he made the lo fi organic version of a uh, of two dollies straddling this yes. this this <laughs> table with a bar between them, which is and, they
1: were doing in night in the you, in the fifth sixties. Yeah, it's like Satyajit like, Ray. I mean, like all yeah. that first stuff he used to do was like you know things on tracks holding. Cam- I mean that was I was I was I was I guess and I hadn't thought of it, but it was that was yeah. Really it, w-
0: it was Abel Gantz, Napoleon <laughs> inst- instead of some modern picture. Yeah. You know, it's fun.
2: Well, in terms of post, um, you know, Josh said that you know you, you did basically get what you needed on the day. You weren't like necessarily uh, banking on doing everything in the DI, but uh, was, there any th- what, was there any work done in the DI? What kind of stuff did you do to well, tweak? Well, the kind
0: in? of things that we did in the DI were some basic windowing. Speaking to the DI, no, I, I've done several by now, and I know what's easy to do in the DI and what's going to be a pain in the neck to do in the DI. So again, looking at the schedule and going, it's going to take me... 15 minutes to, to take this wall down and shape it just the way I want to on the set, which I don't probably don't have versus 2 minutes in in a DI suite and I'll have all this control over it in the DI suite. So that becomes a no-brainer. It's stuff like that. Sometimes sometimes you're moving so fast and the time you might really take to go uh, well, do I drop a single in here or a double into the on this eye light? Maybe you get it as close as you can and then in the di we could go in and bring up just a little glimmer you know you have to make sure there's something there. I mean the template of the lighting has to be there i, I well don't. and
1: that's I think it's just really a simple uh formula is that the D for the di and that is um, you can shape light you can't create it um, it's not that you can't create it but to do it well and to make it look beautiful I think that if you don't have the light there it's very hard to put it in a lot of people try it just there's always some, something off but what you can do beautifully in the di is shape what's there and that's what Russell knew and what I meant earlier about the fact that it's amazing to look at these frames where we had all the depth and all the color changing of light that I something have a cyan, you know, a sodium vapor somewhere and then some warmth coming in and where I, then I'd see the frame and I'd realize, oh, obviously, but there's a lot of spill in the coverage so he could just go in, he has his his background sodium vapors, he's got his mid-ground sort of, a little bit of warmer light and then we have the coverage where there might have been a little bit of spill, which by the way, I'll be honest with you, a lot of times I wouldn't even notice the spill and I was, oh, okay, great, because he didn't have the time to flag everything a thousand times he had enough time, and then he'd go in, zoop, Zoop, and he'd shape it, and, but he needed the base there. I think that's important. I, and I see so many films where I realize, God, that looks so flat. There's no depth to the, the lighting in this. And I just think that you just make a mistake not trying to establish some of your visual lighting markers.
0: One of the great challenges, but joys of this film was to actually shoot the scene where they put together the first Apple uh, computer in the real. Garage, Steve Jobs' real garage. You felt like you were going to, you know, uh, Lincoln's log cabin or something. It, it was amazing. It's just uh, unassuming uh, lower-middle-class house. But when you think of what happened in that garage, I mean, we were all in awe. But it was tiny. Tiny. And we had to be somewhat true to the lighting that we think might have existed there, which was fluorescent light. And we all know that, w- especially when you have a low ceiling, that's not the easiest light to flag off, so th- that's where I knew that the DI was going to be of enormous help.
2: Well, I guess to to wrap things up, I just want to ask Josh. Uh, you know, so what's the what's the plan with the film now? I know it showed at Sundance, and what's the distribution plan for the movie now?
1: Well, it was bought uh, in December by Open Road, and um, or at least they, excuse me, I would say they, they've agreed to distribute it, and. They're looking at uh, release dates. They've played with a couple, and they're um, but they seem to want to g- give it a really nice release. And they've been extremely helpful. And uh, the producers, uh, Mark Holm, and, and and everyone is also putting everything they can behind the marketing of it. You know, it's still an independent, but there's a space for it. And so they're they're seeing in this world of tent poles and studio uh, um, enormity, you know, how a, a film like this can can not only be seen, but compete. So, But they're really up for the task. I think it's going to be a great rollout.
2: Great. Well, I hope it does really well for you guys. Thank and I you. appreciate Thank you coming you. and talking with me about it. Uh, this has been Jim Hempo, Russell Carpenter, and Joshua Michael Stern discussing jobs on the American Cinematographer Podcast.
0: This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to
1: promoting the art and craft of cinematography.